Well, thank you so much for being here tonight, either in person or online. Looks like we've got a, a good crew, and we're going to be diving uh, into the topic of omnipresence tonight. And I'll admit, when, when Wes asked me to cover on this particular topic, uh, when I first thought about it, I thought, okay, you know, of all the topics, that that's not that bad of one to, to get, right? That's one that, uh, you know, we all believe that, that God is uh, omnipresent. Uh, but I've really been uh, challenged this week as I've dived in to uh, understand some of the full implications of what it means for uh, God to be an omnipresent uh, God. As we begin, I'd like to uh, share this quote. You might have seen it before. It's from J.I. Packer. It's pretty a famous quote, and it says, No subject of contemplation will tend more to humble the mind than the thoughts of God. But while the subject humbles the mind, it also expands it. He who often thinks of God will have a larger mind than the man who simply plods around this narrow globe. Uh, and I don't know about you, but sometimes uh, with the busyness of life and, and all the different things that uh, pull us in one direction or another, sometimes I think you could describe uh, my day-to-day living as maybe somebody who just uh, is plodding around, is not spending the time to think about those higher things, to think about the things that actually shape us, that actually challenge us, that actually uh, move us closer uh, in our relationship with God. And and that's why classes like these and the time that we're spending uh, tonight is so important that we all can commit to being those who think thoughts after God. And so we're, we're kicking off a series of three lessons that will hit the three omnis. And these are uh, traits of God that are called incommunicable traits, which are traits that only God possesses that, that we cannot possess. You know, some of God's traits, such as love uh, or mercy or wrath or different traits, we can possess uh, on a limited level. But these traits are, are different. They're traits that have to be considered at their fullest level, at the omni Level And so over the next three weeks, we're going to look at omnipresence, omnipotence, and omniscience. And as we look at them, we're going to try to separate them uh, as different topics to study. But really, I want us to think about them uh, kind of like this braid here, kind of like this interconnected uh, set of ropes. Because uh, even though we try to look at them individually, as we'll see, the three are, are very much contingent upon uh, each other to talk about uh, one of these particular you know attributes of God lends to a consideration uh, of the other two attributes as well and so we're going to do our best to stay in the omnipresence lane tonight uh, but over the next three weeks uh, we will be touching on uh, each one of these and so we're going to open up with some scriptures uh, about omnipresence to ground our, our time together and we'll uh, hit quite a few here at the beginning, and then we'll start exploring, okay, what are some of the implications both for practical living uh, and philosophically about what it means to serve an omnipresent God? And so the first scripture comes from Jonah, and, and we all love the story of Jonah, but the more we read the story of Jonah, uh, especially as adults, it, it's a tough story to swallow sometimes. Uh, and it's tough to swallow because Jonah is one that uh, he misses the point, and the more and more I read Jonah, the more and more I relate to Jonah as someone who 
uh, can sometimes miss the point of what God is is really wanting uh, for us in our lives. But here we see Jonah uh, come up against God's omnipresence in a way that we might say, hey, I haven't done exactly that, uh, but we've all done something probably pretty similar. Jonah 1, verses 1 and 2 says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord, and he headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. And after paying the fare, he went aboard, and he sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Right here we have this direct uh, attempt to get out of the presence of God, right? To be somewhere that, that Jonah doesn't think God uh, will either know that he's there or either be able to uh, catch up with him because of him fleeing uh, by boat. But we know that not uh, to be the case. Psalm 139, beautiful psalm. If you have the time, I encourage you to go back and read the whole thing uh, tonight because it, it really hits on uh, these themes beautifully. But it says, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where, where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me. And if your right hand shall hold me, if I say, surely the darkness will cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you, right? Such beautiful sentiments about the presence of God. Nowhere can we go that God wouldn't be there. And for God, uh, the conditions that we experience that are changing, uh, to him they're not changing. Even darkness is as bright as the day. And so we see a couple of passages in which uh, the Lord is having to remind his people that, you know, no matter what they're doing, no matter how much they're uh, going away from him, he knows and, and he is there and he still wants to be in relationship with them. In the midst of Jeremiah uh, chapter 23, this section that is, is really hard to read, uh, God reminds the people definitively that, that he's there. He's not in some secret place. Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth? declares the Lord. And we know the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. Proverbs 15, verse 3. And so he might say, aren't there a lot of scriptures in the Old Testament in which uh, either through the building of the tabernacle or the building of the temple that the people, you know, through their covenant relationship were trying to create a place for God's presence to dwell? Uh, and absolutely that's the case. But as we see uh, each time that something like that happens, it's just uh, a dwelling that is, it's not antithetical to uh, his omnipresence. Uh, this is Solomon's word about the temple that has just been built at the dedication of the temple. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built, right? You know, they're building this place for the glory of God to dwell among the people in a way that they can interact with him. But even they know uh, that God will not dwell uh, in this temple that they have just built. And one more scripture before we uh, dive into the concept even further. And this is one that Wes has covered uh, the last couple of weeks from Acts 17, in which Paul is preaching to those who are considered to be uh, the thinkers, the philosophers of their time, in which he uh, talks to them about the unknown God that they have built 
uh, in their midst, he speaks about uh, the omnipresence of God as well. He says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and we have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. That idea of in him we live and move and have our being is, is a key connection to uh, God's omnipresence. And, and in that, you know, he sets it up as, you know, he's created the spaces in which people are going uh, to, to dwell. He's created the boundaries. He set things up so people would be present in a certain place. Uh, but that, those constraints, those boundaries, those aren't there uh, for God. And so we're going to dive into uh, the topic of omnipresence, and and as we get into some of these, uh, you know, concepts, a lot of questions may come to mind, and I have a list of four that we're not going to get to tonight, but I think they're important questions to think about, and, and kind of with each one of these lessons, you know, we we want to you know provide some clarity, uh, but the beauty of a lesson about God and in, in his in his nature and his attributes is hopefully to leave uh, with some questions that that have us digging into the topic a little bit deeper. And so we won't get to this idea of, okay, if God is omnipresent, uh, what are the implications of that for the Trinity, right? For Father, Son, and Spirit, and how they interact uh, with each other, and how uh, we read those texts and, and see the interactions between uh, God and Son, or between you know the Holy Spirit and, and us as followers. What does that mean for uh, God's omnipresence? Uh, we're not going to get to conversations about his sovereignty and his providence tonight. Uh, but God's omnipresence, you know, is key to his interactions uh, with the world. Our understanding of how, you know, God can be present in the midst of, you know, the world that we know to be uh, both a good world and a bad world, right? If God is present in all these situations, uh, what does that mean when he doesn't intervene? Or how are we supposed to understand uh, his omnipresence in light of some of the experiences that we have here uh, on earth? Those are some big questions. The idea of hell, right? A lot of people, if you ask them what is hell, they might say it's the place where God isn't. Uh, and if that's your full definition of hell, um, you know, it, it might be lacking in a conversation about omnipresence. It's an important uh, thing for us to dive into. If God is omnipresent, what does that mean for the devil, right? Is the devil omnipresent? Is the devil able to, uh, you know, be everywhere at every time, tempting every person? Or, or what does that mean for spiritual warfare that, that we know is something that's talked to us about in Scripture, but uh, how do we view that in line with this concept of God uh, being everywhere? And so those are some, you know, important questions that uh, are worth further exploration, ones that I think that, uh, that Scripture gives us guidance on, uh, but we just won't get to uh, tonight. And so two terms as we begin, and, and you might see this as you dive a little bit further. Uh, most of the time, omnipresence is used to include uh, both of these things, immensity and omnipresence, but not always. Uh, and it's a definition that we make uh, a lot of times in the discussion about time. 
Right? We will say that God exists in the past, present, and future, uh, and He's infinite, and He will exist for longer than uh, that we can imagine. Right? He'll always exist. Uh, but at the same time, he's also outside of time, right? So we'll say he exists in time and its fullness, and he transcends time. Uh, well, when we're talking about omnipresence, those two concepts apply uh, to the idea of space. Uh, so the word immensity speaks to God transcends all space and is not subject to its limitations. So that's the idea that he's outside of space. He was before space as we know it. Uh, was created, right? In pre-creation, uh, you know, we know that uh, this space that, that we experience, uh, you know, was not there. And so omnipresence would be God fills every part of space with his entire being. And this speaks to his imminence. And so uh, for our purposes tonight, you know, we're not going to really differentiate between the two. When we say omnipresence, we're going to speak of his uh, filling of every part of space and also his ability to transcend space. Yes, it's it's nuanced, but you know it, it's a part of the full understanding of what it means to have uh, an omnipresent God. So, so what's his omnipresence uh, about? Well, first thing it's about is it's a function of his uh, perfection. 16th century preacher Stephen Charnock puts it this way, and it's got a little bit of uh, 16th century kind of phrasing here, but I think it's a good uh, a good statement. No perfection is wanting to God, but an unbound essence is a perfection. A limited one is an imperfection. And so this idea that uh, in his perfection, uh, his essence is unbound, right? This speaks to his transcendence. Uh, it is a function of his perfection uh, to not be limited to space, uh, to not be constrained in the way that we are uh, as physical uh, beings, which we'll get to here in a second. Uh, but omnipresence is also always about the fullness of his being. So when we say that God is everywhere in all of space, uh, we're saying that all of God is in all of space, uh, which we'll explore uh, further. But God is not only everywhere, but is everywhere in the fullness of his being. Although he is present everywhere, we should not think of him as having one part here and another part there. This is called the simplicity of God. This does not mean that he is easy to understand, but rather that he is not a composite being made up of different parts. He is everywhere with the totality of his being. He has no center or extremities. And so we can't view omnipresence as just God has you know, allotted himself, uh, different parts of himself in different places, right? We're saying with omnipresence that the fullness of God, uh, the fullness of his being uh, is everywhere. And, and this is, you know, speaks to his immateriality, right? And when we speak about this, you know, we're not speaking necessarily to, you know, render thoughts of, of like a ghost or anything like that. We're just simply saying that he doesn't occupy physical space in the same way that we occupy physical space. So if there were two people uh, on stage and there was a person standing here and I wanted to move there, right, one of us would either get the space or one of us wouldn't, right? Uh, we're going to bounce up against these constraints to that particular space. Uh, but because God is immaterial, those constraints uh, don't exist in the same way that they exist for us as physical beings. So God may not occupy physical space, uh, but his existence covers every inch 
of reality. And this is something that throughout the Old Testament and, and the New, uh, we're constantly having to get these reminders about idolatry, uh, this desire that we have to give a material uh, structure or representation to God because this immateriality is foreign to us, right? Uh, it's different than that which we know uh, and exist in each and every day. So one of these examples comes from Deuteronomy 4, uh, and Moses is very thorough in this particular example. Deuteronomy 4 verses 15 through 20 says, Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully, since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, Beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth, and beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven." And when you see the sun and the moon and the stars and all the hosts of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them. Things that the Lord your God has allotted to all peoples under the whole of heaven, right? He's saying, you know, don't make it in the image of a person. Don't make it in the image of an animal. Don't even make it in the image of a fish, right? I don't know if that would be a temptation I would have. You know, I don't have a lot of images of fish God in my head, but maybe that's a temptation for some, right? Uh, but this one, you know, we might all could relate to a little bit. Don't look up at the stars or at the sun and the sky and all their grandeur uh, and be tempted to bow down and worship to them. Realize that these uh, are things created by God, uh, but do not represent God himself uh, in his fullness. And so we do see uh, times in scripture like the temple that we talked about uh, earlier, where God does choose to um, bring his presence into uh, different situations at various times. God's presence is no routine event. He manifests himself at various times in scripture. And the term for this is the term theophany. Uh, and so when we see uh, a time in which God manifests himself uh, in, a, in a form that is out of this routine, uh, fullness of his being, being uh, omnipresent, uh, a theophany is what we call it. So a theophany is some kind of visible manifestation of God. So some famous examples would be the burning bush, uh, the whirlwind in the book of Job, or the small still voice that called out to the prophet Elijah, right? These are times in which, you know, God chooses to manifest himself for a specific purpose in a specific place uh, to a specific people, um, but this is not the routine that we see uh, in Scripture. These are events that uh, would either be called miraculous uh, or would be called, um, you know, the type of, you know, experience of God that would render a response of often of fear, right? Often of uh, being taken aback uh, because this was outside of the norm. And so we not only know that uh, often he appears in the fullness of his being, but one of the ways that that he, you know, continues to be omnipresent as is he is plays the role of the life giver or sustainer. And so that passage from Acts 17 that says, in him we live and move and have our being, right? We know that every breath that we take, our entire existence uh, is predicated by God allowing us uh, to have 
existence in the first place. And this doesn't only apply to the initial event of creation, uh, it applies to all subsequent acts of uh, sustaining, uh, you know, life-giving presence of God. Uh, Ron Highfield, who teaches at Pepperdine, puts it this way, God is the cause of all existence, and existing creatures are the effects of God's causality, and where the effect is, the cause must also be, hence the creator must be omnipresent. And so his argument for omnipresence is a little different than, than some of the other ones we've looked at. Uh, he's saying because God is sustaining life in all places uh, on the earth in, in some form or or, or function that that's just another representation of the fact that that he is present you know wherever life uh, is present because he is the sustainer uh, and source of life and and so that is another way to think about uh, his omnipresence um, but to me you know when I first read that I might think of that you know more connected to his omnipotence right to his power uh, to continue to give us uh, what we need. Uh, to be alive. And so we see that intertwined uh, nature of the three omnis of omnipotence, omniscience, and omnipresence. And so for the three to connect, it seems like at a certain level, omnipotence and omniscience are, you know, they're, they're built on the fact that God is omnipresent. And so you could think about it this way. If God is all-powerful, uh, then his power cannot be limited uh, by access. His presence cannot be uh, contained. So if he's going to truly be all-powerful, uh, then there can't be places that are uh, outside of where he can go, right? There are no off-limits spaces for the all-powerful God. Uh, he can go everywhere. Uh, he is all-present. And the same for all-knowing, right? If, if God is all-knowing, uh, then his knowledge must apply to all places uh, at all times, right? If there are some uh, spheres in which God, you know, isn't able to uh, to know about or to um, you know enter into, then that's obviously a hang-up for His uh, omniscience. And so these three claims uh, are interconnected. So what are some things that omnipresence is not? And and this is one that um, you know pantheism is kind of like um, you know a bad fashion in some ways like it keeps coming back right pantheism is one of the oldest thoughts that there is in terms of uh, world religions but uh, we see it have a million life cycles now it is here and and much of the new age thought that we're seeing today uh, has its roots in a lot of these concepts of, of pantheism these concepts of this idea of mother earth or being able to connect into the spirituality uh, of all things and so really this idea is that God's omnipresence is not due to him being one with creation. And so you might define pantheism as the view that God is the universe and the universe is God. They are one and the same. Yes, he is everywhere present, but we should not go as far as to think that he becomes everything in the process. Such a process would spell disaster, dividing God's being as if he were to be meshed with the creation, absorbed by the creature, dissolving the creator-creature distinction. That's from uh, Matthew Barrett. And so, you know, that's a really important distinction of, you know, when we think about God being present, it doesn't mean that, uh, you know, God exists in, in every tree or in every, uh, you know, blade of grass or different things, this idea of, um, you know, this full creation uh, type spirituality of course God is the creator of those things but he is separate uh, from them and yet uh, we see that idea coming back 
over and over. So God may be present with the world, but it doesn't mean that he has become one uh, with the world. And so another uh, idea that omnipresence is not diffusion. And so we've talked about uh, this a little bit in the idea that it's not like God, you know, separates himself into, you know, different entities in the same way God doesn't just stretch himself, right, uh, to, you know, reach all over the world. It's not like, uh, you know, he's being pulled in one direction or another and he finds a way to diffuse uh, across the earth. And so, you know, diffusion as a view of omnipresence might be represented like this. By omnipresence, we do not mean that God simply stretches himself out, that God would imply some type of finitude as if God could be measured, increasing or decreasing. Like with air and light, there is a type of diffusion that takes place, but there is no diffusion of the essence of God. Instead, he is present with his whole being everywhere simultaneously. No place has a part of God, right? And this seems really simple in some ways, um, but I think you see a lot of this thinking in our world, and even in some circles of of Christianity, even if it's not expressed, um, you know, that you know, spelled out in that way. This idea that uh, that that God, you know, diffuses across uh, all space, and this is very similar to that division or multiplication, right? You know, God is not. Uh, dividing and multiplying to get uh, everywhere. If part of God is in every time and place and part is not, then God has parts, which is false, and he does not partly exist in every time and every place, right? And so that's really important for a lot of the ideas about God being unchanging, um, which is another you know topic we'll cover on these sunny nights. Um, but the idea that he's fully God everywhere Uh, keeps us from some of these thinkings that God might be capricious in some way, like a lot of the gods that uh, we see in mythology or in different religions that, uh, that, you know, his character can change just on a whim. So the idea that, you know, God in this part of the world in the auditorium might be behaving in some way, but, you know, the God that's over there in the children's ministry might uh, be behaving in a different way. That sounds really dumb when I say it out loud, but that is a kind of thought that underpins a lot of uh, different, you know, former types of mythology that uh, that we see throughout history. And so, and so what do we do with this concept of omnipresence? Because in some way, uh, it intersects with our lives as those of us who are not able to be omnipresent, right? I mean, we are present uh, in, in certain ways, but but maybe we uh, desire sometimes to uh, be more present than we were designed uh, to be. And I'm about to tell a horrible joke. It's not a funny joke, um, but I hope it's a memorable joke <laughs> around this topic. And so I have tried to lower expectations as low uh, as possible. So here's my picture of the Omni Hotel and Resort. So hopefully you'll remember this when we talk about all the different Omnis, right? We may be tempted to visit uh, but we weren't made to live there. And, you know, that does look like a great place uh, to visit. Uh, but this idea that we are tempted all the time to have these aspects of God that we were never designed uh, to have. If you go back to the story in the garden, right, the temptation is to have more knowledge 
than, you know, Adam and Eve were, were designed to have, you know, pre-fall, right? Or if we go to Genesis, you know, 11 and look at the Tower of Babel, right? It's a temptation uh, to build a tower to the heavens, right? To, to have this type of power that uh, they weren't meant to have. And yet we might say, well, how do we do that when it comes to presence? I think we can, we don't have to think very long before we see uh, how we do that, right? It's so many of the good things that are there in, in our world, but that put us against this tension all the time, right? This idea that the world is globally interconnected, right? That's a great thing uh, on so many levels, and it's a blessing uh, to Christians in so many levels, right? We know that we're called uh, to go to all the world, right? If we look at Acts chapter 1, they were to go to Jerusalem uh, and then Samaria, right? And then, you know, beyond that, uh, you know, to all the world. And so we know that we're supposed to go local and then maybe to our region and then beyond that. Uh, but we're called to go into all the world, but we're not called to go in, into all the world at the same time. And that might be a small distinction, but I think to a certain extent, by how interconnected we are, sometimes we can take on maybe more of what's going on in the world than we were meant to handle as human beings. Now, I'm not saying that ignorance is something that that, that is to be desired, but sometimes I'm not sure I'm supposed to be able uh, to open my phone and know what's going on in basically every part of the world, right? I'm not sure I was built to handle that information, right? I'm not sure I was built to, you know, be as connected to all of the world at one time as we are in this state, right? And that may be something that continues to increase as the technology that we have continues to make us more interconnected, right? I'm not sure I was built to know what was going on in the lives of 1,000 of my friends, right? I'm not sure I was meant to be able to handle that. I'm not sure I was meant to, you know, want to know or, or want to try to be present through, uh, you know, social media or different things in the lives of that many people, right? We see Jesus picking this group of 12 and picking, you know, a group a little bit larger than that. And then we have the crowds. Um, but, you know, he had a different level of connection with each one of those groups. And yet sometimes I think we can try to be present to too wide uh, of a group. Uh, you may have seen this a recent interview with uh, Mark Zuckerberg. It was from March 9th of this month. And in it, he said that he predicts that people will digitally teleport to meetings in 10 years, right? Uh, I'll be impressed, right? But digitally teleport to meetings in 10 years. And there was a quote in that interview in which he said, the holy grail of social experiences is the ability to feel that you're present with another person. The holy grail of social experiences is the ability to feel that you're present with another person, right? It's like this idea uh, that has been, you know, untouched uh, in terms of technology, but it's like that's what uh, these technologies are working towards this idea to extend our ability to be present. And maybe we have to ask ourselves sometimes, you know, just because we can doesn't mean we should, right? Are we supposed to be able to do some of the things? I even feel that sometimes with, uh, with some of the technologies that we have right now, right? I may be at dinner with my family and yet, you know, I'm checking my email or, uh, you know, my phone is blowing up uh, with text. I'm not that popular, so my phone is not actually blowing up. But this idea that, you know, I'm being stretched multiple places because I can't be omnipresent. And so it has really big implications for our scheduling. And this last one, uh, this really silly acronym that we've probably all heard is this fear of missing out, right? FOMO, right? This idea that 
um, you know, this desire grows to be connected. And, you know, if you've had the chance to watch that social, I think it's called the social experiment on Netflix about, you know, the algorithms that uh, all these people are, are using to kind of prey on how we're wired to make us, you know, literally have this feeling that we want to be, you know, plugged in at all times. And the idea that somebody could, you know, play with our, you know, God-given desire to experience presence that he's given us as relational beings is kind of scary when you think about it. Uh, it's kind of scary to think that that could be manipulated in some way uh, by some type of consumer or uh, connectivity product. And so there's a lot of things that we have to think about. Uh, what do our schedules look like? Uh, what does just our, our mental health look like? You know, what, you know, in this time of of, you know, kind of separation due to the pandemic, you know, we've probably all had a, a renewed desire to experience presence, right, uh, in an actual uh, time of being present. So I think these are some things that uh, are important to think about. But I want to end in the same way that um, that we've kind of been ending each one of these classes, and then we may have some time for a few questions if, if people have some. Um, but we will always want to go back to the point that Christian theology begins and ends with Jesus. And so you can't talk about omnipresence uh, without talking about the incarnation, right? Because an understanding of God's omnipresence just makes the incarnation that much more special, uh, that God would choose to take the form of human flesh uh, and dwell among us, right? John chapter 1 tells us that, uh, you know, he literally, you know, the phrase there is moved into the neighborhood, right? If you look at uh, the language, he tabernacled among us, right? He wants to be a part of our lives. Uh, Leonard Sweet puts it this way, and it's a nice uh, turn of phrase. It says, Jesus is the definitive localization of the creator's universality, right? You know, as we've expanded our minds to think about just how, you know, incredible God's presence is in a way that we could never experience. And yet he chooses to become 100% man and 100% God in the form of Jesus, right? That should jump off the page to us. Uh, and, and it underscores this message. And it's the message that, you know, we have to think about when we're thinking about uh, our discipleship. It says, we, for our own sake, tried to become limitless and the world was ruined Jesus, for our sake, became limited and the world was saved, right? You know, of course, he overcame uh, death and, you know, was resurrected and ascended. And so uh, in those ways, you know, he conquered uh, the limits that are placed on uh, human beings, right? Um, but for a time, right, he took on those limits. And, and that's an interesting conversation in and of itself for, for another time. Uh, but our discipleship, you know, has to recognize uh, that we are called to follow God in a certain way, and we're called to follow God as dependent beings. And, and that's really hard for us because we want to do everything uh, on our own. We want to be all things uh, to all people at all times and all places, right? That, that would be perfection. Uh, but we know that God is the only one uh, who is indeed perfect. And so uh, I hope that, that you enjoyed uh, looking at, at some of these uh, passages and ideas tonight. Any any questions? We can turn on this uh, floor mics. Any any questions from any of the things tonight? All right. Well, thank you so much for for being here tonight. I'll I'll pray and then uh, we can take a little time to fellowship. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for uh, this day. We thank you for the chance to. 
uh, to dive into your word further tonight, to think about just how great that you are, uh, to think about how uh, you desire to have a relationship with us and you desire to have a relationship with us in a way that that we may not fully ever comprehend, uh, but we know that that's okay uh, because you love us. And we ask that uh, we're constantly in tune to the way that, um, you know, you're working in our lives and, and that that will uh, propel us to want to be uh, those who extend love to others. We thank you most of all for your son, Jesus. His name we pray. Amen.